Welcome to Technology and the Mind, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of psychoanalytic ideas and our experiences with consumer technology. Each episode, we will interview a seasoned psychoanalyst, philosopher, or technologist about different aspects of the conscious and unconscious effects of how we use technologies on our minds, relationships, and society. Please welcome your host, Dr. Nicole Zapian, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, a psychoanalyst in training, and consultant in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to Technology in the Mind, a podcast where we interview a seasoned psychoanalyst each month about contemporary psychoanalytic concepts applied to our experiences with consumer technology. Today, our guest is Dr. Isabel Millar. Isabel Millar is a philosopher and psychoanalytic theorist from London. She's the author of The Psychoanalysis of Artificial Intelligence, published in the Palgrave Lacan series in 2021, and Patty Politics, which is forthcoming in 2023 and will be published by Bloomsbury Press. She's an associate researcher at Newcastle University in the Department of Philosophy and Research. She's also a fellow and faculty at the Global Center for Advanced Studies in the Institute of Psychoanalysis. Dr. Millar will discuss today the psychoanalytic perspectives she has on AI, with a particular focus on desire, sex, and enjoyment. Welcome to the show. Hi, Nicole. It's lovely to speak with you today. I'm very happy to be here. And we're happy to have you. Recently, there's a lot more focus, at least in the U.S., on a company called OpenAI. And we've heard a lot about the various versions of ChatGPT and all kinds of other ways in which AI might be exciting, might promote some sort of future benefits, and all Mm. the different worries that come with that. What I would want to start with is maybe a description of what you would say constitutes AI and what you think it doesn't, you know, what what isn't included in the realm of AI, and some examples of current and future uses as you understand them. Yeah, so AI is an enormous field, and it's one which covers so many different parts of our culture and our politics and our infrastructure that it's difficult to sum up everything that's going on in AI at the moment. But what's also important to say from the offset is that AI also contains a lot of misconceptions and a lot of fantasy about what actually it is and what it would be capable of. So in the AI crowd, you'll get the general refrain of people saying, oh, there is three types of AI, there's narrow AI and general AI, and then there's super intelligence, as if these three categories are all equal categories. And of course, they're not, because we have narrow AI, we have general AI, but we don't have super intelligence. That's a fantasy object at the moment. But it's one that is so central to our whole concept of what AI is, that it kind of underpins every fear that we have about AI. And the thing is, we do have genuine reasons to be worried, but they're not necessarily the things that we are currently worried about. So, of course, the kind of fears of the omnipotence of the singularity and all of these huge kind of cinematic fantasies about about a, a sort of omnipotent being taking over, that's not really where we're at at the moment. What the problem is at the moment is that AI is infiltrating in so many areas of our lives already that we may not even be aware of. And we are allowing it in, in in ways that we probably shouldn't. Um, at the moment, that the one that on everybody's lips is, of course, the Chat GPT and and Dali, which on two fronts, you know, you've got the worry over people's ability to write something original, and that AI is now suddenly going to take away this capacity for us to create interesting ideas textually. And then on the other side is the 
the idea that artists will have all of their creativity stolen from them because AI can now create images and take away the livelihood of artists. Both of those positions are, are kind of strange because this kind of challenge to human creativity has already started and started before these obvious infringements that we're having with technology. I mean, Walter Benjamin already was was worried about the idea of technological reproduction of the artwork a long time ago. But because it's becoming, it comes into contact with people's fears when it immediately hits their kind of livelihoods, of course. So it should. But, you know, for example, I can say for me, for a, a writer, in terms of intellectual property, my intellectual property is stolen from me all the time. You know, I have no knowledge of it. My work is sold by big companies that I don't make any profit from, like publishers. They sell my books. I don't make any money from it. People read my books. That You know, so and like every other person who writes stuff, you know, so it's these kind of ideas already that people are worried about. But it's like, well, yeah, but there's something else going on. And then, of course, you have so many other scary kind of infiltrations in AI to do with replication of the voice, the replication of human emotion, supposedly that we can have machines that can study human emotions and then work in medicine, for example, to help people with depression, et cetera, et cetera. Um, another kind of thing that's happening at the moment is this idea of the democratization, so to speak, of AI, which comes in something called low-code or no-code AI, where now people who don't know anything about coding can sort of just ship in AI into their companies and use it as a sort of copy paste to build whatever they're using for their business. So there's so many ways where it's, it seems like it's helping us. It seems like it's being benevolent, but in so many ways, it's clamping down on very intimate parts of us, which we aren't paying very well attention to. And another one I'd like to also highlight is something that I found particularly obscene is the fact that the entertainment industry, which it has been doing for a long time, is using forms of AI to predict exactly what the types of films and storylines they should be making in order to get the most amount of profit. And on just on the level of the profit making of it, which is horrible, yes, but even more horrible is the idea that we are no longer left alone to develop interests and find things of our own accord because everything is algorithmically mapped out for us before we even get a chance to know what we're interested in. And this is the kind of Adornian element that I'm very interested in, particularly in my work at the moment, is, is the way that all of our most intimate desires, interests, curiosities are mapped out in a sort of omnipotent way for our whole life before we even get the chance to begin discovering. So I think, yeah, that's, the, <laughs> that's a few already. That's actually interesting because of what we know about if you don't have interests that are your own and they're mapped out for you, then you don't explore things. There are paths that aren't explored and you don't rehearse and experience and practice whole categories of things then. And so those things die, even at the functional level, you know, the neurology level. Exactly. We see this actually in high schools really predominantly now. High schools, I don't know how it was in London, but when you go to a high school campus 20 years ago, it used to be that kids were sort of experimenting very much with their identities and their interests. So you would have sort of nerds in one area and jocks in another area. These are American terms for people who are interested in sports, people who are interested in academics, but even more nuances around the way they dress and the kinds of things that they do after school and so on. Now you see this kind of monoculture. Everyone's dressed exactly the same. When a new trend comes, all of them pick it up and do it. And it's, it's kind of this fascinating machine-like environment where there is no individuality anymore. Absolutely. 
I absolutely agree with your fear on that one. Okay, so AI is a fantasy. AI has some real risks. You wrote a book on AI and psychoanalysis, which I thought was super interesting. You discussed the idea that psychoanalysis may help us to move from the question of does AI think and will we be outsmarted by the eventual singularity to does it desire and enjoy, which has a series of interesting implications. Can you say a little bit about your views on this and how you develop your argument and what it implies? Yeah, so the psychoanalysis of artificial intelligence was my PhD thesis, and it sort of grew out of this interest between, on the one hand, the psychoanalytic clinic and how it's situated within wider intellectual history of um, Lacanian theory and continental philosophy, and the contemporary problems surrounding our interactions with AI and our fantasies about the kind of almost sexual fantasies of AI. And of course, I'll go into that a bit more in complex terms about what I mean by that in the book. But the sort of initial conceit of the book is to sort of put these two terrains, psychoanalysis and AI, into a provocative discussion with each other and ask what is it about AI that we are not properly engaging with and what are the questions that we need to look at that are perhaps not always understood correctly. And one of the kind of main problems that I had with the discourse around AI was that a lot of it is in the sort of field of analytic philosophy was, was treating AI as this sort of very self-evident object that could only get more complex with time. And it's just a matter of how good our technology is until we achieve X level of sophistication. And much of it is based on the kind of singularitarian fantasies around an eventual moment of, of complete capture and this being either a very good thing or a very terrible thing, you know. So there were these two sides of people represented by various figures like, on the one hand, Nick Bostrom and then Elon Musk and these different sort of emblematic people who were steering the conversation in different ways. And what I was thinking was, oh, well, well, neither of these kinds of sides are actually looking at the very important psychoanalytic questions, which is about the subject and about what the human subject as a speaking being is in within the question of intelligence itself. So what I first was interested in is how to even, before we start talking about artificial intelligence, how to look at the concept of intelligence as a genealogy of how we've reached now, the way that we conceive of the whole kind of panoply of things involved in the concept of intelligence, which is a a concept which has evolved over centuries and changed with different political and scientific movements and how we now talk about intelligence and what different philosophical movements have gone into this process. And of course, one of those important moments is the psychoanalytic moment, the moment where we started talking about the unconscious from Freud through Lacan to the idea of the, of the speaking subject. And what's involved in that theoretically is the necessity to factor in the idea of the symbolic, the idea of abstraction, the idea of language, and crucially, the idea of the body and the body as being part of this so-called intelligent being. So I go through various stages to work up to this problem and I sort of attempt to ask some classical philosophical questions, i.e. the Kantian enlightenment questions. What can I know? What should I do? What may I hope for? And kind of invert them in a psychoanalytic way. So in order for us to kind of get some new perspectives on what possible problems we are going to be encountering when it comes to these fantasies that we've been thinking about for many centuries to do with what is this creature, this 
artificial creature that we're creating, supposedly. And said, of course, part of that is the question of sexuation, which we can go into, or if you, I don't know if we want to pick up some other issues before I go into that. Maybe it's important to go into that, but I think some of our audience are psychoanalysts, some are not. So it's a pretty broad audience. So maybe sexuation is a complicated topic. Maybe there's a way to make it accessible for a broad audience. Yeah. So I think one thing to consider is that for psychoanalysis, at least, sexuality is a question very, very intimately linked to language and a question related to the ways in which all human beings are positioned within language. And in a sense that all, for psychoanalysis, all that the human being is, is a sort of biological body captured within a system of symbolic laws that they don't really have any control over because we we all have to just be born into this world of demand and desire and and drive that that we actually, as these little strange animal creatures, don't really choose. But we're born into it and suddenly we're we're just captured in this framework. And this process in Lacanian terms that we call castration of entering into the symbolic is where we kind of negotiate how we position ourselves in relation to this human condition. So without going into too much Lacanian jargon, because either people who listen to this know the Lacanian jargon and don't need to know it, or they don't know the Lacanian jargon and neither do they need to know it either, as it were. Once we're in language, we are positioned in a way that determines our forms of enjoyment, our forms of being in the world. And one, crucially, our sexuated positions, whether we are a masculine subject or a feminine subject or a non-binary subject, of course. So these positions within psychoanalysis are ones that are not so much related to anatomy and biology, as we know, but to do with language and enjoyment. So this concept of enjoyment, or in Lacanian terms, resance, is quite a technical term that actually tries to capture something quite specific about how language is related to meaning and how in psychoanalysis, the way that we understand the question of knowledge is also quite technical in terms of it's related to a structure that changes depending on the context and depending on what situations we're in when we're where we're trying to obtain some form of meaning from any kind of discourse. So with this in mind, this perhaps helps to explain a little bit why sexuation is something very much related to the generation of knowledge and the specific question of artificial intelligence and the ways in which artificial intelligence is very intimately connected to how we think of subjectivity and how we think of sexuation. So that's one of the main ways that we can think about this interesting idea of sexuation can be seen through lots of our portrayals of sort of sci-fi imaginings of the creation of artificial beings. And in the book, I talk about various different films in which we see human beings interacting in different ways with the sex bot, which is the term that I use in the book, to describe a fully formed embodied sexual object. That is also a robot, correct? That is also a robot. But in the films, you know, what we don't, what we have in the films that we don't have in actual real life is that... Yet. <laughs> yet. <laughs> is that these are supposedly fully conscious, fully capable versions of humans. There's basically no difference. So, and this is something that, of course, in, in reality, we don't have. So the idea of the sex bot in, in reality versus the sex bot in a film are very different concepts. But what I was interested in is to try and look at the kind of different iterations that we can go through 
with dispositing of the so-called sex bot that proposes different sort of epistemological and ethical challenges to us. And, you know, the first one that I use is the example from Ex Machina, the film where the young guy is, is sent to kind of enact a Turing test with this sex robot. And of course, most people have seen the film. He ends up being left while she she goes off into the world and discovers what's outside and the table's being turned. But what's interesting about this film is that it sort of dramatises the very much the Lacanian question of sexuation and the question of masculinity and femininity as being one to do with the pursuit of the other's knowledge and the enigma of femininity being something which uh, the masculine position will perpetually try to obtain. So you're always trying to find out, you know, is she a woman? But in this film, you know, this question of is she a woman is synonymous with is she conscious? And what was so interesting about this film is it was completely isomorphic, that relationship her being a woman and her being conscious was basically the same question that he was trying to find out. Can I sleep with her, essentially? And when he found out he could, that basically proved that the Turing test was real. So this dramatization of the masculine position as being one which needs to make the feminine position exist at any cost was a very nice way of kind of getting into the debate about how sexuation functions in our fantasies around undead bodies, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. As you're talking, I, even this question, can I sleep with her? Putting aside even the femininity question, can I sleep with it even? If we take everything from sex toys all the way up to sex bots and everything in between, or even virtual reality, I'm left with the question of what does it mean to sleep with another? And I think this gets at the question from another direction, maybe. Mm. Is that the same that's interesting. That's or is that entirely masturbatory? You know, like no, but that, but that's so nice that? that you <laughs> that you brought that up because I'm being polite and using that term rather than the f word, which is the way I usually yeah, say. Yeah, can it. I fuck it? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Can you both be unconscious together? Which is a different question. So which gets really... to la petite mort, which is the whole business of orgasm and, and dying. And okay, so here yeah, we are yeah. in deep terrain. Exactly. So we've got there so very quickly. <laughs> I really like the, the way you put that because what I suppose the book works towards, we could kind of superficially, you know, the idea of, oh, does it enjoy? And, and it kind of like gets people thinking, oh, are you saying that these robots are, have feelings? And of course, that would be the naive, of course not. Of course, I don't think that. And of course, there is nowhere in the world at the moment where AI exists and is conscious. Absolutely not. But what's interesting is to provoke people to actually ask the questions about the humans that they don't even ask the questions about. You know, it's like people have all these expectations of what AI is. And it's like, well, yeah, but you haven't even thought about what human consciousness is yet, which is why you have to do the psychoanalytic step before you can even do the step to artificial intelligence. Because what sexuality shows us is is the very, very much the question of what's happening when we're having sex well, we're interacting with two different unconsciouses (laughs) and neither of them we're really to grips with, not our partners nor our own. We're enacting these fantasies that we don't really know where they came from, but nevertheless, they are very real in that they interact in an immediate and vital way in our forms of enjoyment. This also brings up the question of consent. So if you ask the question, does it enjoy... You also have to ask the question, can it consent? No, because if it enjoys, it must want or not want. And maybe the way I understand human consent, it has something to do with, we consent to an act, like it has something to do with time. We consent to an act sort of, you know, either through gesture or words. We start that act 
And then somewhere in the middle of the act, or maybe even each singular moment that passes, we might have different feelings about what's happening. We may wish to revoke our consent or change our consent or lean in a direction of some other kind of act or, or whatever. And so it seems like consent sort of moves through time. Absolutely. And enjoyment does too. I mean, right? To ask the question, does it enjoy? Well, does anyone enjoy every single singular second of every sexual act that they're having? No, there are moments where like your elbow is annoyed or you, the dog is barking <laughs> or, you know, whatever. So there's, there's all of these things that go on inside of enjoyment that are also relative to time. Absolutely. And I mean, I think the crucial thing for psychoanalysis is to recognize that enjoyment is just one tiny flip away from suffering and that you may be enjoying something, but it only takes one tiny little bit too much and suddenly you're not enjoying yourself anymore. That's not just sex. That's everything. That's the very nature of human beings is that we like something and we want something or and we do it and we do it, we do it. And then suddenly it becomes awful or it, be, or it becomes an obsession or it becomes a some oppressive thing that we can't stop doing and becomes a compulsion. And this kind of circuit of enjoyment is one which is very difficult for us to control, especially because everything about our enjoyment is now so highly monitored and curated by forces that we don't have anything to do with. Before we even get into that, I, I just wanted to pick up what you were saying about time because the question of changing your mind and being able to to move between desires or, or revoke consent is a really important question which of course relates to power you know who are the people that can change their minds well they're the people who have the power and so the question of consent which is always used against the weaker parties in rape cases 99% of the time being women, is that if you consented, well, sorry, that's it. You you said yes then. But if you change your mind five minutes later when it wasn't what you wanted anymore, people can't understand why that would be. But of course, it's so absurd because everybody knows. Everybody knows this is how sexuality works. Everybody knows that people feel obliged and pressured and unsure, not just of whether they think they should do something, but whether they want to do something. And people change their mind. And that's the nature of the very delicate balance of sexual interaction that is always being navigated between two people. So, of course, when the power is on one person's side and has always generally been on the man's side for millennia, women are always going to be the ones who are on the back foot when it comes to changing their mind or deciding, even if they never say. It's complicated. You mentioned you wanted to go back to enjoyment and, and get into that. I'm interested in your views there. Well, the book that I'm working on at the moment is called Patai Politics, and it derives from a concept that emerges in the, the psychoanalysis of AI to do with, in a discussion that I get into in, in, in relation to the question of fully formed sex slaves that you see depicted in various films as sort of bodies that can be perpetually raped or perpetually used for any sort of sexual end. And so to this idea, I kind of developed into the thinking about this trajectory from the question of biopolitics in the Foucauldian sense through Ekimembe's notion of necropolitics. So, of course, the management of life to the management of death, and then to this idea that I want to start thinking about, which is politics, which would be the management of suffering, patio from, from the Latin to suffer. Because I, I was thinking about it specifically in relation to this sort of horror sci-fi scenario that, for example, in Westworld we see 
very well dramatized of the sort of victim that is perpetually wakes up the next morning and can't remember what's happened to her. So she goes and she does it again. She can't get out of that thing. But then I was thinking about, you know, all the implications of what that means for humans to be able to kind of have a sort of consequence free indulging in everything that they want with supposedly the commas without hurting anybody because it's not real type thing. What does this mean for the human being? And Lacan has very interesting ideas about what ethics are in, in relation to desire. And he, he discusses this in relation to the Marquis de Sade as a sort of corollary to Kant's ethics as one which is being actually logically based on the pursuit of, of desire to its nth degree. And he kind of says, well, the Marquis de Sade is actually more Kantian than Kant because the way he formally thinks about ethics is much more philosophical than Kant's. And he has this very interesting way of describing this movement. But what ultimately he's trying to show is that all of our normative ideas of morality and ethics are underpinned by a very libidinal framework that is foreclosed to us and we don't realise it's there. But it's something that we have to be aware of because it underpins all of our kind of social understandings of morality that, of course, are religiously influenced and politically influenced, et cetera, et cetera, but that have very deeply disturbing <laughs> underpinnings. So the idea of us essentially wanting to make other people suffer or being interested in, in our own suffering is part of being a human being, is part of the horrible dialectic involved in the supposed free engagement of human beings. When actually, as we know, you look around the world and most human interaction is horrific. Most humans are making other humans suffer on a massive global scale. So this idea of pati politics came to me to be a sort of way of trying to make a paradigm out of this question of suffering and how it has become a, a mode of administering human beings and, and controlling them according to their enjoyments. So yeah, so that's that's what I'm kind of interested at the moment. This is very Foucauldian. This is interesting. I started to think about what we think we enjoy if we were able to exercise those enjoyments with bots or in some virtual reality or what have you. And we have the, the idea that it's without recourse. It's not only the bot that we hurt and our own guilt or our own shame or our own whatever, but I imagine there's a cost that's unseen that we can't yet know a cost to ourselves. Like I have the experience of imagining that people would then be very separate from other human beings and maybe unable to enjoy with other human beings if they spend too much time with a sex bot or if they spend too much time in virtual reality with, you know, I don't know, power fantasies of destroying other people or, you know, even if this goes into snuff porn and I don't even know where all, you know, racialized rape scenes and so on, which I, I know already exist in the porn landscape, but if it's able to be actually acted out, would this cause some harm that we might be able to anticipate either in terms of, you know, what, what does that do to the hearts and minds of the people who participate? Yeah. I mean, this is a kind of eternal problem, isn't it, of catharsis or... And then there are people who say these kinds of scenarios would be really helpful for like pedophiles. So you sort of let them act it out here so they don't act it out in real life. So I don't know. Yeah, I yeah. Know. I've, I've heard some very disturbing things like that. But it's an age-old question about what to do with socially unacceptable or criminal mindsets. You know, do you give it an outlet or do you 
treat the problem. I mean, obviously the horror of it is that it's like, well, instead of us perpetually creating the conditions for people to want these awful things, let's try and find out why that's happening. <laughs> let's not perhaps turn around and be surprised when you've got a generation of kids who've been growing up with all the most hardcore porn on their phone from a young age, why are we surprised that now they would want to do something else or what will be interested in something worse? I mean, it stands or to that reason. they have erectile dysfunction at, you know, 15 or 20 or whatever. Or that they're or not that interested they in tall age sex exactly. and they find it completely traumatizing and horrific. I mean, exactly. of course, this is the thing that is sort of unacknowledged is that children now have access to porn. And unless something very drastic happens, this is going to carry on. It's not going to get less. So instead of us pretending it's not there, and not only children have access to porn, you know, men have been using prostitutes, supposedly, who are upsending members of the community. That's part of the economy. The idea that it doesn't exist is such a, a ludicrous fantasy. But the sex industry, of course, is a very important part of the digital landscape. Yes, not it's to say, fueling the. It's fueling a lot of it. I mean, if it's not if it's not war, it's sex. It's based on it. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. based on it. I mean, the whole thing was built on that infrastructure economically because it fuels economically. It fuels so much of what has happened on the building of of these frameworks. So, of course, what is necessary is a sort of two pronged question, which is on the one hand dealing with the fallout of that and the people who are affected by its accessibility, but also how to protect and care for the people who work in those industries, who are sex workers and who are A, making a living out of it and B, need to be protected from all of the obvious dangers of being in that industry. And those are very complicated questions which require much more, more attention than I can give them at the moment. I think the question of what do we do with the fact that it's possible for us to enact everything and do everything. And where does that leave us psychically? Because I suppose this is what we're interested in here now is what does it do to, to our sense of self and our intimate life? And I suppose I'm deeply pessimistic about all these things. And I'm very Baudrillardian in the sense that I think, well, we've been moving slowly towards this kind of complete obscenity of culture, not just in the obvious pornographic sense, but in the sense of total transparency of everything, of information, of data, of our whole lives, there's no privacy anywhere, that as we move closer towards this kind of complete explosion of obscenity of everything, you have to get to a point where there has to, again, be a sort of retreat of some sort. And for Bojar, that was like an ontological question, because for him, it was like, well, as you see everything becoming more and more obscene, it gets to a point where the human is kind of like, denuded of everything and there's nothing left it's just this sort of like collection of code and so you know his idea of seduction was really about seducing metaphysically in a sense like withdrawing from reality because otherwise we sort of like dissipate and we don't have any kind of human what's supposedly in a very common freedom anymore and that's to, to me what really freedom is based on on, on it sounds like privacy Yes. You need that little bit of space. The space to retract and to be invisible, I suppose. And this is what I'm really interested in, I think, with pornography, is how it actually is going to reach a point where people don't want it anymore. <laughs> because it's sort of like you're so saturated and I feel so sad for young people who have grown up with it and who, who must be so kind of 
depressed and distressed by it. And, you know, I'm glad I didn't have access to any of that stuff. And personally, I don't find it interesting. And it's not it's not to morally judge other people who do or use it, whatever. I don't have any opinions on that. But I think that, I do think that it's for young people must have been a very traumatic thing for your first encounters with other people sexually for it to be like that. I mean, in, in psychoanalytic terms, it's the primal scene on loudspeaker all the time, everywhere, in kind of really intense ways. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, and I say this almost everywhere I go, because I'm hoping that some tech giant will hear this and take it up as a real idea. But I keep wanting things, you know how there's like the slow food movement and the slow this movement and that movement. I want a slow porn movement and a slow cell phone movement, meaning I want someone to take up the idea that there might very well be a market for pornography that is so slowly developed with a lot of, you know, almost like erotica, but not in book form, something that is incredibly sensuous and incredibly, you know, et cetera, but also cell phones that actually protect you in that way. They don't bombard you with ads and apps and all these things because it takes too much for the average user to figure out how to shield themselves from these things and how to still take it in, but not take it all in. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I remember thinking a few years ago, like the biggest commodity that's going to be, we're going to want is privacy, basically. And and now privacy is what billionaires can have. They do have it. Yes. They shield themselves from their own products. Exactly. They make them, but they don't want to have anything to do with them. You know, And they and also all, don't let their kids have them, which I think says a whole lot. Well, all the Silicon Valley people don't, you know, their children sort of basically <laughs> grow up like peasants on a farm, don't they? They don't want to have anything to do with technology. So, of course, you know, we are just so, like, assailed from all corners with all of these different forms of technology. And we don't get a choice. No one asks us, do you want this? It's like, well, we have to have it. Because if we don't have it, we're supposedly not able to function in the world. I mean, like, the idea that people have consented to the personalization arguments in AI when it comes to shopping. It's like, oh, well, survey says that 91% of consumers would be happy if it made their shopping easier, made a shopping experience easier. And it's like, yeah, but do you know what that means? It's like, I didn't ask the question the other way, which is, <laughs> do you realize that you've given up your ability to freely browse and consider topics and, and ideas outside of what you already know? And we didn't ask that. And therefore, this will have political consequences and so on. No, we didn't. We didn't ask it that way. Because that survey was fueled by the company that wishes to make money. Exactly, exactly. And just going back to the, the thing about the sort of entertainment industry and on the sort of very basic level of in the 60s, 70s, 80s, people would watch stuff on the television and they might be people who are not from highly educated backgrounds or just the average person turning on the television. They don't know what's going to be on, but there's going to be a program that might be something intellectual or highbrow and they'll watch it because they don't have a choice but it's on the television they'll find something and go oh that's so interesting and I've learned this and otherwise they would have never had the opportunity to learn about an artistic movement or a literature documentary whatever right but now those same people who are not in the sort of economic bracket to go through to higher education or whatever when they turn on the television those things don't a don't exist anymore because they don't well certainly not in my country they don't make interesting documentaries barely at all intellectually but also everything is now curated so the tv companies what they want to do is find out what your average 24 year old woman living in grimsby wants to watch and they'll give her that 
but she, of course, so then she's only ever going to get the things that she thinks she already knows. So, so she's never become the sex bot in a way. Exactly. She'll yeah. never come out of that system. So it's just so, it's so horrible. It's so obscene. And, you know, I've spoken to people in those industries who are at quite high positions making programs about that kind of stuff. And I'll be like, oh, what about this? What about that? And they're like, yeah, but, you know, we can't get those programs made because what we need to do is we need to find out what sells and we need to find out what people are interested in and we have to tailor exactly to their needs because it's democratic, because we don't talk down to people. And it's like, no, you're not talking down to people. You're giving people stuff they would never have the opportunity to find. And that, to me, is the obligation of broadcasters, certainly, is to be like, OK, well, how can we get interesting content to people who wouldn't otherwise be able to have it? No, now that's not the case anymore. It's just we want to sell you a program. We want to give you exactly what we know you already know so that you keep coming back into the same cycle of nonsense and endless programs about love island and spin-off of love island and this celebrity program and that celebrity program so that's all that people watch i can tell that it's not that different here it's interesting we <laughs> yeah. do a lot more with violence it right. Island, yes, yeah, yeah. it seems than love Island, but yes we do a lot more with violence well of course you know you love your guns isn't it? So. yes we do unfortunately <laughs> not me personally but yes <laughs> is there anything more you want to say about about your book or about Anything that we've talked about so far, I have some more questions for you, but I'm just curious. It feels like we've gone in a lot of directions. There's a lot more to say. It sounds like it's a brilliant upcoming book. Maybe say a little bit more. Well, the book will be a kind of collection of various different essays around this concept of pattern politics, which does have obviously the, the very strong AI element, but also the question of sex, but and more more specifically kind of this idea of the administration of enjoyment, which has become a very oppressive and scary thing. And so I kind of look at it in various different dimensions to do with the way that we're administering the body and administering beauty and administering all of our kind of different modifications of ourselves. In some ways, it's a feminist book then, no? About power. Yeah, I mean, as a female philosopher, I'm always reluctant to say I'm a feminist philosopher because what happens is people call you a feminist philosopher and I'm not, I'm just a philosopher. To me, if you're not a feminist, then you're not doing it right anyway. So I just don't even use it because it's a no-brainer. But in the sense that, yes, it is very, I hope, radical and emancipatory for for people and especially women and and all people, you know, trans people. To me, it's more about power than anything else. It's more about the administration of human bodies that I'm interested in. And what I hope from the book is that it kind of opens up lots of other conversations in the same way that the psychoanalysis of AI has hopefully opened up other types of conversations around these questions that don't often get asked about. So, I mean, as I go along, I'm always thinking of new elements to it. And I'm sure this conversation as well will, will spark me to write a different chapter on, on some of the things that we've, we've discussed as well, because there's just so much, there's so much we can say about. There really is. There really is. So folks who practice in clinical contexts, like myself and psychoanalysts, what advice do you have for how we can work with technology companies or work with people who are working in tech or work with the average consumer, which is everybody at this point, to help them identify the possible unintended consequences of AI. Do you have any advice for them or for us? I suppose there's, well, on the one hand, there's for the tech companies and the other hand for the everyday people. I mean, for the tech companies, I'd say 
I'm very suspicious that any tech company is interested in anything other than getting the maximum profit and administering as best as possible people's wants and desires. So, but that's me being suspicious and, and cynical. And I'm sure you know a lot more about how much more complex and, and interesting it is. And, and I'm sure there are very good people working in these industries as well. And I would just say that we need to be more attentive to the ways that we can't let this run away with us and be too seduced by supposedly all of the efficiency of these things, because actually efficiency is not what we should be aiming for. And in a very particular sort of philosophical sense, I really think that efficiency is the enemy of thinking. And it's a kind of a way of avoiding actually confronting real human problems. And Actually, human beings haven't changed. We haven't changed that much for so many thousands and thousands of years. Yet our technologies are forcing us into doing things that ultimately don't make us particularly happy. That being said, there are many amazing benefits of AI in medicine, for example, and other ways in which it's making human life better. But whilst we're in a capitalist world, I don't think there's much hope for how much of these benefits are going to be seen by average people and by poor people and by people living under difficult situations in different parts of the world. So that's my anti-capitalist cry. And then on the other hand, for the individual people coming into the clinic, I mean, in terms of like AI, I suppose, again, it's the same thing. Like, be mindful of what you're exposing your mind to because your mind is very fragile, very complex and can be so easily traumatized. Take care of it, I would say, like take care of this precious and powerful, powerful thing that you have. And don't be too seduced by all the things that you think technology can do for you, because actually technology can't really do that much for us on an individual level, I would say, in terms of happiness and well-being. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. There are some people here in Silicon Valley who believe that technology will extend our lives into immortality or it will make it not relevant for us to work, which is kind of horrifying. Well, the thing is, it's like, that's interesting. The the argument about automation being full automation now, you know, for luxury communism and all that. And I, I'm on board with the idea of, of getting jobs, boring, horrible jobs, mundane jobs done by AIs and everything. But of course, the idea of leisure and the idea of is only a good idea when it comes to human beings actually knowing what to do with themselves. Because human beings left to their own devices don't really know what to do with themselves. We end up doing stupid stuff. So like we do need to work. That's the thing. It's just everybody needs to have fulfilling and nice work that's not dangerous, oppressive or boring. It's a little bit of it. We all have to have boring work. Like That's just life, unfortunately. But how do you get the the machines to do the boring bits and not take away the good bits is, is the very impossible question I don't know I'm so glad I'm talking to a philosopher because even just the word good or boring or whatever I mean all of these things have to be defined and they're all subjective and it's problematic and wow so this is a difficult problem and do we know what the role of boring work is like sometimes as I'm doing the dishes for the you know second time in the day and I, I would rather be doing something else if I took all of the boring bits away would I actually have different physical problems like does my body need to go about these repetitive motions to keep my body healthy well, absolutely. And this is one of the other enormous blind spots about artificial intelligence is that it's not very good at about thinking about the body in relation to thought. And the different rituals that we have throughout our day, from when we awake to when we go to sleep, we need certain repetitive actions, we need certain therapeutic actions, and we need certain stimulating activities to be able to function in a way that doesn't lead us into depression or lead us into manias or whatever. And 
or even physical symptoms, I imagine, or, or you know, physical, stiff or, joints yeah, and course, so on and constipation course. and whatever else. Yes. Of course, you know, on the physical level, being active, etc. But in terms of like mind activity, you know, this is also another aspect of the book, The Sacrifice of AI, is that I talk about the work of the late Bernard Stiegler, who talks about the question of technology as a pharmacon in the Greek sense of the word of being both a good thing and a bad thing poison and a cure of, of as technologies has evolved with the human animal ever since the beginning of time since we first started exteriorizing parts of our memory and that exteriorization of course starts with the most basic marks that we make onto the physical world but also of course language and the process of abstraction and, and artificial intelligence is is just a very, very extension of this abstraction. And, and so what he's interested in is how the process of memo techniques of exteriorizing different parts of human knowledge, what it's actually done over the course of history is take away human beings' capacity to do certain tasks. So that far from just our technology becoming better and better, we're getting human, dumber. <laughs> we, we're getting dumber. So we're losing the ability to know how to do certain basic things with our minds. And we can see that happening all the time. And we can see on the level of boredom, how important boredom is to be able to keep our mind working properly. Because I don't know about you, but I notice that thing of I've got that horrible compulsion with my phone because I have to work from my phone all the time. I'll be checking different things and I'll be looking at my phone. I'm like, I don't even know why I'm looking at this. Fuck exactly. Off. Like, just get away from me. But I can't stop. Mm-hmm. And like that's become the thing, isn't it? That we we have to fill every moment with a piece of information. I need this new information. Has this happened? Has that? And you don't get the chance to retract and have imagination, like just like calm. Like we don't get that anymore. So it's a terrifying situation. Yes, yes. So you've been working on a host of projects. There's a lot of new things coming up. You have a staggering number of engagements with teaching and writing and speaking and researching. Is there anything you'd like to share about upcoming projects or anything we've spoken about today? Well, so what's what's happening? So I'll be be in, in Berlin next week, actually, for this thing called the KI Camp, which is a big event organized by the German um, federal government of a sort of interdisciplinary event with people from different backgrounds, sort of academically talking about AI, which I think is is a really interesting development because it's very much needed um, that bringing together artistic and philosophical and scientific people together to talk about AI. So that's going to be happening next week, the 26th. I don't know if it's broadcast or something, but it's definitely going to produce some interesting interactions and lectures and stuff. And I, I think that will be available to people to see and then, yeah. Can you means, tell us where where people could see that? Is that it's in Berlin, and I can put I will put the information on my website if you want to sort of like link in my website to the thing. But I I'm pretty sure that because I just only received all the blurbs about it today that there's cameras and things there. So I think it's going to be broadcast either online live or it will be available afterwards. But there'll be lots of sessions that people can watch with very interesting AI figures globally. If people want to come to England or in England, I'll be at the How the Light Gets In Festival in May. So that will be interesting as well. Lots of different thinkers and economists and politicians and stuff like that talking about not just AI, but issues in general. So yeah, all everything else will be on my website if people are interested. So. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much. This has been delightful. We've been far and wide, I feel like. Yeah, Um, yeah, definitely. No, thank you so much. It was really, really fun. Of course. We've been speaking with Dr. Isabel Millar. Thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And thank you all for listening to Technology in the Mind. 
Next month, we'll be speaking with Dr. Jeremy So on creativity, dreams, and how these impact and are impacted by consumer technology use. Please join us at Technology in the Mind on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Technology in the Mind. If you would like to learn more about psychoanalysis and technology, please visit the Center for Psychoanalysis and Technology at www.centerforpsychoanalysisandtech.com. For additional episodes of Technology in the Mind, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts.